As we have just sung together, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. And our ability to trust, to, to take the Lord at his word, is based upon God's word. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Um, today we're going to cover the story of Noah's Ark. We are not going to read all four chapters of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Um, but this is where the story of Noah's Ark is found. And we find it sweet to trust in the Lord's promises because Genesis 6 through 9, the story of Noah's Ark, is another example of where God's promises are found. In fact, it's a very significant first promise made. As we use this language of covenant, as we've used it in baptism, just so that we don't get confused on the word, because you hear it in Genesis 6 through 9. You hear it in the baptismal liturgy. A covenant is a promise that God makes, and it is a promise that also comes with a provision, meaning God gives the words and God also makes the way. A covenant is a promise that also comes with a provision. And so we're going to, after a moment of prayer, read, we'll start in Genesis chapter 6, and we'll start at verse, oops, we'll start at verse 5, and I'll read just a short section to start with, and I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond at that moment with thanks be to God. But then I invite you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to move through the different movements of this story, leading us to the takeaway of Genesis 6 through 9, the takeaway of Noah's Ark and the flood is the promise that God makes, the covenant of both the promise and the provision for that promise. So let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. God, send your Holy Spirit as you sent your Holy Spirit to Noah to speak to him, to rescue him from the waters of the flood. Speak to us as you spoke to your servant John, who was called to baptize our Lord Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit upon us in all of its fullness, that our hearts may be drawn to you through your word and that by your Holy Spirit, these promises may be held on to, this covenant of both promise and provision. By your Holy Spirit, speak to us, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
It is interesting, and it is also fitting, that Noah's Ark is a famous children's story. I mean, it lends itself towards being the stuff of church nurseries and at-home children's play areas. Our love of both the animals and the water and the boat, these are all good things. And the sign of the promise of the rainbow at the end of the story is like icing on the cake for how easy this story is to connect to. But it does not start with anything that is pleasant or children's nursery friendly. It starts with God being deeply troubled that the wickedness of the world had spread so far and that evil had rooted itself so deeply into every human heart. That, that God was deeply troubled. God is very bothered by the way that sin has moved, that every inclination of the human heart was always evil all the time. This is a heavy start to a story. And when we think about the reality of what God is saying, we hear once again just how serious the consequence of sin is and was and until Christ returns will be. As Pastor Audrey led us through the story of Genesis 3 through the fall last week, it did not take long for the good and very good creation to be corrupted. And now it has only gotten worse, going from the disobedience in the garden to the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, and now to this point where God is washing God's hands of it. But God is not just washing God's hands, but through the waters, God is going to wash over the world as if to almost start over. But it's not a complete reset. This is a heavy start to a story that we shouldn't brush over too quickly. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Of all of the wickedness, of all of the sin, of all of the depravity in every human heart, we are told that Noah, in verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that even when when evil had its day, when it seemed that everything was horrible and everything was going wrong, there was still hope. And even just one person was enough for God's saving love to be shown. Even for the sake of just one family, God's love would be poured out. In Genesis six eighteen. We move ahead to that word, that covenant word of a promise with a provision where the Lord spoke to Noah and said, but everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant, a promise with a provision with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah the same Noah who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah did everything just as God commanded. 
And so the ark was built. The ark was a giant, giant boat, and it became a floating zoo. And the animals followed Noah and his family. And it's, it's a move of God's Holy Spirit for the preservation of life, that they will come to you, Noah, to be kept alive. That's an important verse, I think, for our imagination, because otherwise, can you imagine trying to chase down like a whole bunch of animals and to push them onto a boat? I mean, some of you have, um, some of you do or have worked with animals on a farm, and so it's hard enough to get, you know, a few of the same animal to move in the right direction, to imagine gathering up all of these animals, but they come to you, God says, so that they may be kept alive. Because even when God is grieved and deeply troubled over the state of the world, God's Holy Spirit is still moving to preserve life. Even in the chaos of our lives, God is still moving to push our life to us, to protect us, to be with us. And even if you look around today at the state of the world and kind of think that maybe the beginning of Noah's Ark sounds familiar, that the inclinations of human hearts are, seem always evil all the time. God's Holy Spirit still finds reason to move and be at work in the world. And so two by two, they go on to a giant floating zoo. And you might know some of the children's stories about following two by two, one that we have on a CD right now that plays over and over again at the DeVries household is, Who built the ark? Noah, Noah, who built the ark? Brother Noah built the ark. These, these songs will never leave my mind. But they follow two by two. And then for 150 days, so for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains. And there's water coming from beneath the earth and from the skies. For 40 days and 40 nights, it's raining. And in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 24, we're told that it's 150 days after that that the earth is covered in the waters. That is a really long time to be in a floating zoo. And so I, I just want you to imagine for a minute, to try to engage Scripture with all of our imagination, to, to, to think about what it would be like to be on the ark for, you know, about a year. I mean, we, we were told to stay in our houses for like three months, and that wasn't with like two of every living creature on a floating zoo. I wonder what it would be like to um, be in charge of janitor duty on the ark. What do you think it smelled like on the ark after 40 days, much less 150 days? I wonder if that got old. What would it smell like? What would it look like? And what would it sound like to be floating on a giant zoo in the middle of the biggest storm that the world had ever seen? The floodwaters purge the earth. And you heard in the, baptismal, in the baptism liturgy, through the waters of the flood, God cleansed the world of evil. And yet, it's still Noah and his family and the animals on the giant floating zoo, feeding them, cleaning up after them, and waiting for the flood waters to go back. And eventually, the floodwaters start to subside. 
And it's just like in creation in the first place where God had hovered over the waters and then separated out the water to make dry land appear. It happens again where the surface is covered with waters and God organizes the waters again to make dry land appear, to give humanity a second start. And Noah isn't quite sure and hasn't been given the instruction to go out yet. And so in chapter 8, first sends out a raven. And eventually the raven's gone, so it found somewhere to land. And in chapter 8, verse 11, then the dove is sent out. When the dove returned to Noah in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. And he waited seven more days and, seven, and sent out the dove again. But this time it did not return to him. I feel like those seven days would have been the longest of the whole time when you're just waiting to get out and it's just one more week. But the dove comes back with an olive branch in its beak. Doves and olive branches are signs of peace. That God had made peace with the world in sending a dove and an olive branch back to Noah as a sign that there would be peace again, that the waters of the chaos would no longer take over the world, but that now dry land would appear, plants and vegetation would begin again, and that Noah and his family would be told to go and be fruitful and multiply. It's like the sixth day of creation had a repeat start. For many of us in the room, chapter 8 is also very significant because it's at this point that we're told that we can eat meat and steak. Up until that point, um, humanity was expected to be mostly vegetarian. And so that's a good part of this whole story. But here's what's troubling. Here's what's, here's what's hard to wrap our heads around with Noah's Ark. The earth was washed over. There is a tremendous amount of death by drowning that happens. This is a catastrophic event. And this happened because in Genesis 6, we're told the inclinations of every human heart were always evil all the time. But then look with me at, verse, at chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. This is after the flood. They're allowed to finally get off the boat. And then verse 15 of chapter 8, God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, the same heart that was grieved and deeply troubled, said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart 
is evil from childhood. What was it all for? The flood has happened. Humanity has gotten a restart. The world has been essentially reset. And God's, obs- God's declarative observation after the flood is, I'm not going to do that again, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. What was it for? If anything, the earth got a time of rest from wickedness, which is significant that Noah's name in Hebrew means rest. It's not Sabbath, but Noah in Hebrew means rest. The earth got a break from all of the evil and wickedness. But what started with every human heart is evil all the time, so we're going to flood it. After the flood, it's I'm not going to flood it again, but there is still wickedness from the day of youth. Friends, this is a hard point to wrestle with. What did it help? And it won't be long as we continue through the stories of the Old Testament that things will go wrong again. But that's why the covenant matters so much. The covenant, in fact, is the takeaway of the story because the earth being flooded did not change the fact that humanity had still fallen into sin, that God's good and yet very good creation would be marked by sin and disobedience. And so in chapter 9, verse 12, we get to the covenant. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant, a promise with provision, for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all of the life on earth. The covenant sign, because covenants are promises, They come with provision, with God making a way. They also come with a visible sign of an invisible word. And in Noah's Ark, the takeaway is the rainbow. The covenant sign is the rainbow set in the sky. Now, refracted light is pretty easy to recreate. We had a little prism, a little crystal in my grandmother's house that you could spin it around and it would catch the south-facing windows sunlight and it would send uh, little bits of rainbow all over the room. And we had all kinds of fun with that. But there's something really significant about the shape and the direction of the original rainbow in Genesis chapter 9. And it's the fact that there's not a separate word for a rainbow and a bow as it would be for bow and arrow. And I don't just have this today because it's a Vandenbosch family baptism and it makes them more comfortable. 
this is a very simple bow. This is the bow that I learned to shoot with and that now my daughter is learning to shoot with, which is kind of scary and impressive. But the bow has a certain shape to it. And if you bend a bow, it is the shape of the rainbow because recurve and and, uh, compound bows are a long ways into the future. The original rainbow, there's no separate word for refracted light rainbow. It is the shape of a bow from bow and arrow. And which way is it pointing? Who is it pointing at, us or God? God. The bow is pointed at God. Because even after the flood, every inclination of the human heart, even from youth, is still going to be prone towards missing the mark, towards sin. And in fact, the word sin is an archery term of distance from center. By how much did you miss the mark? To know that when we sin, we miss the mark. But the bow... God's bow through which he could destroy the world is not pointed at us because God knows that we cannot hold up our end of the bargain. We cannot keep the promise of righteousness. We're not capable of it. And God knows this, and that's why God's covenant promise is God's to keep, that it is not It is not just for us to see the rainbow and remember God's love, but God says, I will see my bow in the sky and I will remember this promise that never again will I wipe out all of the earth with a flood. The bow is pointed not at us. It's not that God is up there in heaven just waiting for the next person to do something wrong, that God is waiting to judge us, that God is just looking for a target of someone who does something wicked or unrighteous so that God can fire righteous judgment down upon them. The bow in Genesis is pointed up, in which God says, I will keep the promise The provision of this promise of covenant is mine to keep because you can't. Because your heart will be led astray. You're going to miss the mark like a bad archer. Now, you can get better over time, but you can't carry the weight of this promise. So God does not send another flood, but God sends his son Jesus to be the one who can hit the mark for us because we can't do it on our own. Our repentance, our acts of repentance, are to try to get just a little bit closer to center. But we don't do so imagining God up in a tree stand waiting to fire on us if we mess up. We do so remembering that the bow is pointed up and that our repentance is out of gratitude for God's great love. Why do we baptize Archie today? I mean, he seems like a nice kid. We don't want to think of Archie as sinful by nature, but Archie was born into a world of sin. We baptize Archie because he needs God's promises of love. And we don't blame Archie for being born into a world of sin. We don't blame him for the fact that he's going to learn to be, you know, probably a little bit of mischief sometimes. You don't blame him for that. He's Kyle's kid. And you don't blame Kyle for that because he's Kelly's kid and Terry's. 
And you don't blame them for that because we all know you think of Verlin and Marlene and you think, what troublemakers? <laughs> we don't go to the Buter side and say, well, Todd and Tina, well, we know what Archie, you know. We, we don't trace the lineage and expect to find anything other than what Scripture tells us that we are born into a sinful world, that we are born almost with an inclination to be led astray, that the human heart is so easily led astray, but that God is not just waiting with anger to hit those who mess up. This is a changing point in the scriptures, and it's only Genesis yet, that God is saying, if I'm going to see you life, full of life, if I'm going to see humanity be righteous, God says, I have to be the one to keep the promise. Not you. It's not just the refracted light of the rainbow that matters. What matters so much in this story is who the bow is pointed at. What does this mean for us in how we live? Who do you have an arrow pointed at right now? Do you want to hold your bow too? Think of all the things that make us want to hold one. Symbolically, not literally. Is it anger and indignation? Is it thinking about those who have wronged us? Is it thinking about those who are frustrated with us? Is it our continuous disappointment? Is it our... Is it, it could be any myriad of things that, that we are feeling righteously mad and we want to point the bow at someone else. And then we remember that God said, no, no, the bow is pointed at me. You don't get to go through life following God's example and point your arrow at other people because the only bow that matters is God's and the only righteousness that we have is not just through the flood of the reset, but it is through the waters of baptism where we remember that Christ's promises, the covenant that God will hold up the bargain of righteousness and goodness, is on God and not on us. Think about who you have an arrow pointed at or how, how you want to hold on to the bow and say that the bow is yours to point. And how much more is it actually God's to point at whoever God chooses and God does not. Because that is God's promise of eternal covenant love. It is a promise with a provision, and the provision has to be held up by God, not by us. So next time you see a little bit of refracted light, but especially next time you see a rainbow in the sky, remember that is God's bow that God has pointed at God's very own self, not at you. And as Jesus would often say, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the creator, you are the redeemer, and you are the one who loves the earth and all that is in it. And so as we come to you, may we try to be like you, not only in hitting the mark, but also in remembering that you do not sit up in heaven looking down at us with your bow ready to fire. 
But in Genesis 9, you explained to us that the bow is pointed at you, that we are invited to lean on your promises, and that the only reason that we can trust in them and lean on them is because you made these promises in such a way that it is you that holds up the bargain. So God, we thank you for your promises of love, and we thank you for your provision. We thank you that most of all, you kept your promises not to send another flood, but that rather you would send your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the one who would hit the mark for us and to be the one who would receive the arrows that we fire out of our sin, out of our anger, out of our judgment, that you received all of these and more when you died for us upon the cross and that the bow remained pointed at you, O God. So for the ways in which we miss the mark, we repent. And for the ways in which we forget your promises, we ask that you move by your Holy Spirit to help us trust in your words and in the provisions that you gave, and may your signs of water and rainbows be a reminder of it. May this be so, that we may set down our own bows of wanting vengeance, of having hatred, and of all the other ways in which our human hearts are inclined to point in the wrong direction. Thank you, O God, for your promises and for your covenant. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Chuck Brower has an announcement for us this morning, followed by...